1 Corinthians warned you about the women with a loud mouth, and this podcast is just that. Here at the Speaking in Church podcast, we talk all about the regular people and the things that regularly happen to them in the evangelical church. It's a podcast about change. It's a podcast about seeking moral high ground. And it's a podcast for people who are just trying to deconstruct on the safe side. You can listen wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to be a guest, yes, you, regular person, you can be a guest on the Speaking in Church podcast. If you want to come on, just let us know. Welcome to another episode of A People's Theology. I'm the host of A People's Theology, Mason Meninga. In this episode, I talk with Tom Ord. Tom Ord is a theologian and author of more than 25 books, including Open and Relational Theology and Introduction to Life-Changing Ideas. Also musically featured throughout this episode is Cat and the Hurricane. Cat and the Hurricane is a queer indie pop band from Wisconsin. You can get connected with Tom and Cat and the Hurricane and their work in the links in the episode description. If you're a fan of A People's Theology, it would bring me no greater joy than if you gave the podcast a five-star rating and review. Tell me what you like about the podcast. Also, if you feel so inclined, please support my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mason Meninga. There are multiple tiers with wonderful rewards, including papers I write to even a book club. Enough of my rambling. Enjoy more inspiring and liberating theology. Today we have Tom Ord, the Dr. Tom Ord with us. And Tom, you are not only a good friend of mine, but also an incredible theologian. And I don't know if I've, you know this story now, but I don't know if I've ever said this story publicly because I think it's kind of a fun story. But about six or seven years ago, you and I were at a similar conference or at the same conference. And at one point there was like a dinner time and there was a whole random group of us just happened to be at the same table and we're eating dinner and we're kind of going around introducing ourselves and saying a little bit about what we do. And, you know, most of, most of the people were just, you know, local pastors or parishioners or whoever. And then we get to you and all of a sudden you're like, yeah, I teach theology and I write a lot about love and science and yada, yada, yada. And everybody was Everybody, I tell like everybody at the table was like, "Whoa, who is this guy?" And like nobody else got second questions. You got third and fourth and fifth questions, and it was like, "Oh, okay, this is a somebody." And then I didn't. I kind of like forgot about that whole moment and forgot about you. And then a couple years later, I kind of was reintroduced to your work, and I was like, "That's the guy who was at that table with me that one time." What in the world? So anyway. <laughs> yeah. You have a better memory than I do because I don't remember that introduction thing. I do remember the conference, but uh, yeah, my memory isn't as strong. Yeah, you're, but you're getting a little older than me. I'm just kidding. <laughs> that I am. <laughs> so like I ask every guest, who is Tom Ord to Tom Ord? Tom Ord 
is a different person in this moment than he was in the last moment. He's an evolving self. He's a series of uh, moments of experience over time. But at least in the last several decades, the Tom Ord of most moments has aimed to be a loving person, to live a life of love. And that looks a lot different in each moment, looks a lot different today than it 20 years ago or whatever, but I really do want to live a life of love moment by moment. I don't, I don't always succeed at that, <laughs> but that's my aim. And uh, that usually looks like doing things like writing books, speaking, teaching, hiking, photography, being a father, being a husband, being a grandfather, dream, being a friend, dealing with people who are internet trolls, <laughs> uh, <laughs> other people who are great conversation partners. And I guess my hope is that at this moment, the Tom Ward to Tom Ward is someone who wants to love by having a good conversation with you, Mason. Oh, that's so nice of you. <laughs> I will say all the process and relational sort of folks always have that answer. So <laughs> I don't want you to think that you're any different than all the other process and relational uh, people that's right. I've had on. They always give that answer. So that's great. <laughs> we are not substantive selves. <laughs> that's true. Well, you recently wrote a book called Open and Relational Theology, an Introduction to Life-Changing Ideas. And I think out of all of your books, this book kind of gets at the heart of a lot of what you do in such simplistic and really accessible ways. I mean, this is the kind of book that I could even give one of my youth when I was a youth pastor, and they would mm. totally get it. You know, they might be going through their first crush or their first heartbreak, but they could <laughs> read this book and start to get a nice, a good sense of, okay, well, this is how God relates to me in this this moment of feeling like I got dumped at the middle school dance or whatever. <laughs> but it's because they can actually understand what you're talking about. And I think that's a really an incredible thing that a theologian can do. And so that's kind of, you're taking a lot of the ideas that you've written about over the number of the years and really kind of getting them into this language that really makes sense to a lot of people. Well, with that said, you know, you're no stranger to writing books whatsoever. You've written like probably what, like 20 or so books now? Who knows? Who's even keeping track? <laughs> but what did you learn theologically in writing this book that maybe you didn't know before? You're pretty well steward, or you're pretty well uh, adept to theology at this point. But yeah, what what was something that you learned in writing this book that maybe you didn't know before theologically? Well, I think that every book's a learning process, and some of the learning involves taking ideas and working really hard to make them accessible. And then sometimes even inventing new things. And I invented a word in this book, uh, and that word is omnipotent, A-M-I-P-O-T-E-N-T. -E I noticed that. <laughs> you noticed that, yeah. <laughs> it's a chapter title, so it's, it's kind of hard to miss. But that was one of the fun things as I look back on this book, inventing a word that tries to take love and power and put them together, putting love first. And then kind of thinking through some of the implications of what a person might think when they saw that word flash up on the, on the page, mm. trying to contrast it to omnipotence and impotence, a God who's, you know, all powerful or does nothing. So that was one thing I learned. I don't know if it's like a, a brand new theological idea, but more a, a way to articulate some theological ideas. I'm 
constantly trying to articulate well. I really appreciate that because, yeah, there are so many moments where I'll talk with somebody about how process theology or open and relational theology denies, I guess, if you will, that God is all-powerful. And immediately people think then God is the opposite, that God is totally (laughs) impotent. And that's just not the case at all. And it's not just the people on the street. I was at an academic conference at a pretty uh, conservative evangelical seminary on a panel, and a person who, if I said this person's name, many of your listeners would know, who's an evangelical philosopher, he thought I was a deist. He thought my God sat on, you know, Mars and watched from a distance uninvolved because I don't have a controlling God. He thought the opposite must be a God who does nothing. And it's sad when professionals make that kind of mistake. I often say I'm closer to atheism than I am to deism. (laughs) Yeah, if you have a choice between the two. uh, (laughs) So, again, you've written a lot of books, and I'm sure in the process of writing a lot of those books, you've learned a lot about yourself. So what was it in this book that you learned about yourself that, again, maybe you didn't know about yourself before? I learned that writing a book that's easily understood by a wide audience is lots of hard work. I've known that before because I've tried to do it in the past. Um, Many people think that writing a highly technical academic book takes a lot of work. And it does when you first do it the first time or the first couple of times. But then once you do it and you try to say the things you want to say in accessible language, it's much harder to write an easy to understand book. Mm. um, As you said earlier, that was it was my aim to make a book that seventh graders could read. In fact, when I was you know how when you would do your spell checker at the end, you can see what grade level it's written at. This book is written at a seventh grade reading level. And when I saw that, I was like, yes, that's exactly what I wanted. I wanted a book that, uh, yeah, you know, people will probably buy this book or get this book who are interested in theology. But you don't have to have an academic degree to understand what's going on. But it's also not like fluffy, you know, Mm -hmm. like I'm wrestling with big questions like God's nature or God's relationship with time and God's nature. And those aren't little fluffy questions, but to do it in a way that people can understand without, you know, caricaturing other views, uh, that's hard work. Yeah, that was one of the things that I noticed when I was a youth pastor was talking about these really big questions and big ideas in ways that made sense to them. And that really was hard work, especially as I was in seminary and having to use all the academic jargon and trying to figure out ways to talk about these things in ways that made sense to a kid with zits was really tough. Yes, there's a there's an essay I wrote against biblical inerrancy. I wrote as a youth pastor because I had a couple of really sharp kids in the youth group who were wrestling with errors in the Bible. And so I did this long research thing and wrote that thing out. And I still use it to this day with my graduate students because it presents it in a very plain kind of way. Hmm, That's great. Wonderful. Well, speaking about kind of the average person, you begin the book by talking about what most Americans believe about God. And there were some surprising stats to it. But what is it that Americans believe about God? And why do you think they believe what they believe about God? Yeah, I was drawing upon a a study by a couple of sociologists at Baylor. And these sociologists, through a bunch of questions and surveys and what sociologists do, determined that 
almost all Americans come down to believing in one of four kinds of God or one of four models. They think 95% of Americans fit this, these uh, four models. Wow. One is a, a critical God. One's a distant God. One's a, an authoritarian God. And finally, a benevolent God. And so I start the book out kind of trying to lay out these ideas of God. I, I think the words that I use to describe them give you an idea of what is involved in each. But to, to kind of alert the reader that there are a number of ways to think about God, and these ways aren't necessarily congruent. They don't fit well together, at least on the face of things. And I wanted to do that because I'm presenting a different model of God. In fact, one that doesn't fit neatly in all in any of those four categories, although closer to the benevolent God than the other three. And so it's kind of setting the reader up to think, oh, yeah, there, there's more than one way to think about God. So with that said, what would you say is like an alternative to these models that fits into what you're kind of thesis is or what you're really aiming for and talking about what God is like and, and God's nature. Yeah. Well, the model that's most prevalent in the United States is the authoritarian one. And this is a God who has rules, punishes you, is strict. And a lot of people like that view of God, apparently because it gives focus to their lives it means that people who do bad are going to get punished one way or the other. And a lot of people like that kind of view of reality. Open relation thinking is much closer to the benevolent view of God, a God of love. But as I say in the book, almost everybody believes God is loving. It's just that when they spell out what that means, the God that they say is loving doesn't sound very loving. And <laughs> this God right. sends people to hell. This God either causes or allows rape, torture, and abuse. This God likes some people and elects some to salvation, but not the rest to damnation. This God cares only about people instead of the planet. I mean, there's all kinds of things that that is usually wrapped up when even professional theologians say God is a God of love. And open and relational thought is provides a category, a framework to have a consistently loving God that doesn't send people to hell, that isn't the cause or even allowing evil in the world and all those kinds of things. And so um, the alternative to those four is this open and relational view that I'm trying to lay out in the book. So speaking of which, can you talk a little bit about exactly the kind of fleshed out details of this open and relational theology of God and how it might be a little different than that. You've kind of talked a little bit, but can you really yeah. dive into what you mean by open, what you mean by relational, and kind of spelling all that out a little bit more? Yeah. Open and relational theology is a big tent under which there's lots of diversity, but the words open and relational hold together these diverse uh, views underneath it. The word relational means that God is not only giving, but also receiving. God not only influences us in all of creation, but God is influenced by us in all of creation. Now, the kind of churches I've been a part of and I'm still a part of, if I were to say that to the typical person on a Sunday morning, no one would bat an eye. Now, everyone would say, oh, yeah, of course, God cares. God hears my prayers. God is mad at sin. You know. God's affected, they would say. But uh, many don't know that the majority of major Christian and Muslim theologians in history have thought that God is unaffected, 
unmoved, uninfluenced. Uh, the technical word is impassable. Relational theology says God is really affected by what goes on. The open word stands for the idea that God moves into an open future, that God doesn't predestine things that are going to occur. In fact, God doesn't even foreknow with absolute certainty everything that's going to happen. And so instead of thinking of God as sort of timeless or standing outside of time, seeing all history all at once, open and relational thinkers believe God moves through time like we do, sequentially, mm. so that the past is past for God and us, and the future is a future for God and us. Underneath those two words sit a lot of other options, but open and relational theologians typically emphasize God's love. They typically do away with classic ideas of God's power, or at least rethink those God ways of uh, thinking of God's power in pretty radical ways. They emphasize God's presence in all creation. They emphasize God's transforming work, God's care for all creation, human, at least human freedom, perhaps creaturely freedom more broadly. So those are some, some of the other themes that come up uh, quite often. Mm -hmm. You mentioned before that Everybody probably believes that God is all-loving, but yet process or open relational theologians think about love in a particular way that might be different than that sort of all-loving God of, I don't know if you want to say classic theists or whatever yeah. it might be. Can you talk a little bit about how open relational theologians understand love, specifically God's love to the world? Yeah. So one of the things I've kind of already mentioned, but I'll stress it a little more, a classical theologian, a conventional theologian, a person who, let's say, is a Roman Catholic who follows Thomas Aquinas, or is a Lutheran who follows Martin Luther, or is a Dutch Reformed theologian who follows John Calvin, they're going to say God loves in a sense of giving to the world. God is benevolent. But they're not going to say God is relational in the sense of giving and receiving love, an ongoing kind of interaction that's loving with creation. So open and relational thought is going to say, no, just like we know that love in any kind of relationship is this giving and receiving. It's not just one way. God is the same way with that. Those people who believe in a conventional God often don't think God has any emotions whatsoever which makes it really hard to say that God is truly compassionate because usually compassion has some kind of feeling dimension and it's a response to something that happened, but a God who doesn't have any feelings and doesn't respond, how is that compassion? How is that compassionate at all? In fact, Anselm, Aquinas, many of these people recognize this problem and just said, well, I guess God's compassion is entirely different from ours, which is just a big fat appeal to mystery. Or a lot of theologians, even someone like maybe in the Arminian or Wesleyan tradition, has said that, you know, God doesn't predestine, but the horrors of the world, your sister's rape, your grandmother's dementia that's eating away at her body or soul, those things are allowed or permitted by God. And somehow that's a loving thing to allow evil. And most, not all, but most open and relational thinkers are going to say, no, God's not allowing the crap that happens in the world as if God could just single-handedly stop it. That's not what a loving person does. A loving person prevents evil that is preventable, but 
God's power is different. God doesn't have the kind of power to single-handedly prevent evil. So those are just a, maybe a three kinds of ways in which open and relational people think about God's love that differs from, uh, we'll call it a conventional view of God. So along these lines, you've spelt out a little bit more about what you mean by open and relational theology and how open and relational theology thinks about love. I'm sure a lot of people listening are like, okay, why does this even matter then? Why does thinking about God in all of these ways matter? So why is open and relational theology important to the world? What does it offer to people who are suffering, maybe systemically or personally or in other ways? I get letters practically every week from people who send me a letter saying it really matters to them. It makes them think about themselves and the world differently and think about God differently. Two days ago, I got a note from a friend who gave my book, God Can't, to his 80-year-old grandmother. He sent me a note and said that she has undergone incredible suffering in her life. Physical, sexual, emotional abuse. Her kids have died. Her, her husband died. She's dealt with illness. I mean, just had a really tough life. She read my book, God Can't, that presents a, this picture of a loving God who's not in the business of causing or even permitting evil. And it totally changed the way she thought about God and the way she lives. She, as this person said in the note, feels free now because she doesn't have to think that God was punishing her with all the crap that she's endured or somehow teaching her a lesson or was a part of some mysterious plan that God had for her. That realization has radical implications for most people. When we know that we're deeply loved, not just loved like the God sort of gives you stuff, but loved to our very core, and that God isn't allowing the difficulties, the, the genuine evils and pointless pain we have, for most people, it just has a radically transformative and liberative sort of sense that it brings to them. And that matters. Yeah, I've often talked about with other people that in some ways, you know, we're talking about the problem of evil or theodicy. And yep. for some people, they think of open relational theology, whether it be process theology or open theism or all, all the things under that open and relational umbrella. The sort of response to the problem of evil is that God can't do some of these things. God is doing all that God can do, but God can't make that, what you mentioned before, God can't make that single-handed kind of overriding decision or action in the world to stop some of this suffering and evil. And that's sort of the logic of the problem of evil, but there's still this sort of existential thing that people experience all the time of, does that kind of response to the problem of evil existentially affect you in a way where it can kind of it makes those concerns go away. Yeah, that's well put. Yeah. Yeah. And so anyway, I, I sometimes sense that in, in some ways there's this sort of logic to it that it might answer, but not always necessarily existentially. But sometimes it does existentially really answer that problem of evil that really that a lot of people wrestle with. Yeah, that's beautiful. And I, I, it, I see the same thing with something that your listeners are probably going to think is even more obscure and unimportant. And that's God's relation to time. 
Mm. Many people think, well, why does it really matter if God's outside of time or inside of time? If God's experiencing time like we do and moving into an open future that even God doesn't know what's going to happen for sure, or God is sitting outside seeing the beginning and the end all at once. Who really cares, they say. But so many people I know in the open and relational community who made the jump to thinking God experiences time and the future is open, that just existentially, psychologically allowed them to feel so much freer. Mm -hmm. And it simultaneously meant that their choices in cooperation or not with God really made a difference in the future. Their lives counted. And that's the sort of, I mean, even the great existentialists, they, they were emphasizing that, you know, Kierkegaard, for instance, you know, he mm -hmm. wanted to say, you have to be free because if you're not free, your life doesn't really count. An open and relational thought picks up that theme and incorporates that not only in the way we live as creatures, but thinks of that in terms of our relationship with God. Mm -hmm. So wonderful. First Corinthians warned you about the women with a loud mouth, and this podcast is just that. Here at the Speaking in Church podcast, we talk all about the regular people and the things that regularly happen to them in the evangelical church. It's a podcast about change. It's a podcast about seeking moral high ground. And it's a podcast for people who are just trying to deconstruct on the safe side. You can listen wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to be a guest, yes, you, regular person, you can be a guest on the Speaking in Church podcast. If you want to come on, just let us know. You know, as more and more people leave institutionalized religion, especially in America, but a lot of them continue to sort of retain spiritual beliefs. A lot of them continue to believe in God or some sort of higher power. Do you think that open and relational theology has a really great opportunity for those people as they maybe sense that the the church or religion is not necessarily for them, but still are interested in things of the spirit, if you will? Yeah, I definitely do. Because, you know, most people have known for a long time, they've said it verbally, they've heard it said that God is bigger than any institution or bigger than any religion. And we all go, yeah, yeah, that's true. But until you have an articulated theological framework to use that isn't somehow tied to one denomination or one religion, it's sometimes harder to see how that actually works out in real life. There are lots and lots of open and relational thinkers who don't feel comfortable being in any one particular denomination or even religion. But you see this vision of God, it's a, it's a real God. It's not just sort of, you know, sometimes a spirituality sort of dismisses any claims about ultimate divine reality and just kind of has certain practices. I'm all for practices, but I also think we ought to have this vision that's grand, that's all-encompassing, that includes, in my view, an actual God who is really in real relationship with us in creation. And you don't have to be a part of any particular religion or institution to embrace that view and live life abundant. Mm. Sort of along those lines, I would imagine a number of listeners have been hurt by the church and they know that they don't believe in that sort of authoritative type of God that you talked about before but they might be wondering, why should I still believe in any type of God? So why should they believe in this maybe open and relational type of God rather than just becoming an atheist altogether? Yeah. Well, I was an atheist myself for a while. So 
And I did that in part because of my dissatisfaction with the traditional views of God. So I have great sympathies for people who are in that particular place. I didn't stay an atheist, and a lot of open relational thinkers don't stay atheists because they still have big questions that seek decent answers, believable answers, plausible answers. And some of those questions have to do with whether or not there's anything, any meaning to life. If there's no God, does life really have ultimate meaning? Others have to do with whether or not the world or there's any sort of ultimate goodness or justice. And belief in a God places that goodness or justice in an ultimate reality. And, you know, we can add more and more to this kind of thing. So it's often the case that I find people go through, come with a kind of a traditional view of God, whether they were taught that as kids going to whatever synagogue or mosque or church they were in, or if they kind of just picked it up in popular culture, they have a kind of view of a conventional God. Then they see that that view doesn't work very well, not only with the way the world works, but also there's some internal consistent inconsistencies, like how can God truly be in control and me have real freedom? I mean, that doesn't make any sense. And so they go through a kind of deconstructive period. And some of them go to atheism. Some of them just sort of have a God who is sort of ambiguous and they kind of pay lip service to the big G guy in the sky or some divine ultimate reality or ground of being, but they don't really work out any kind of details. But for many of us, staying there doesn't make a lot of sense. And we continue to work in a way that brings us to the kind of views that I've laid out already that are common in open and relational theology. And that means getting rid of the crap views we had when we were younger but also having something that makes sense that's not just sort of ambiguous fluff that you kind of throw up and say, well, that's spirituality. There's some real meat on the bones in this kind of theology. One of the most compelling reasons why I still remain a theist to this day, even though I'm like a lot of those people that was told a certain type of God growing up and have now rejected that type of God. In a, in a lot of ways, I'm sort of an atheist to that type of God. Right. But one of the most compelling reasons why I remain a theist is what I love about open and relational theology is that it retains this idea that you are known intimately and uniquely by God. I grew mm. up being told that Jesus knows you personally and that you can have a personal mm. relationship with Jesus. And that never was the issue that I had in my faith growing yeah. up. That was never the issue. Uh, although there are you know, issues in terms of only making it about a personal relationship with sure. Jesus. Or Jesus only personally loves me and not the Muslim across the street or right. that kind of bad yeah, thinking. Yeah, exactly. But in the issue was never that Jesus knew me uniquely and intimately. In fact, in a lot of ways, that was probably the thing that kept me a Christian. Mm. And what I love about open relational theology is it even like it turns that to 11. It really <laughs> wants to emphasize that God knows you intimately and uniquely among all of the other things that exist in the world. God also knows you intimately and uniquely. And even when you pass away, your memory will be held within the life of God in God's self. And that sort of highly relational, the hyper-relational, omni-relational type of God really 
compels me to want to be still a theist is, yeah, I just find that extremely compelling that, you know, in the midst of everything, when you feel like you're all alone or when you're battling um, depression or the world feels like it's just all falling apart, to still know that you are uniquely and intimately known by God is still, I think, a really compelling thing for a lot of people. I think you need to write a thousand word essay on that topic. I'll publish it. This, this and, time uh, you'll publish it. That's right. <laughs> this time. That's funny. <laughs> yeah. I think you need to write that up somewhere and put that out there. Cause that's very well said, very well articulated. And you're definitely not the only one who feels that way. Yeah, absolutely. So you've written about open relational theology for a really long time, and you've been really a part of it. And I think in a lot of ways, I've noticed that a lot of people, especially, again, coming from evangelicalism or more conservative forms of Christianity, a lot of people are starting to sense that, oh, there's a different way to think about theology and a different way to think about God. And there's kind of, I don't know, I've like noticed a little bit of like, there's just more kind of momentum, you know, with with Dr. Trip Fuller's podcast and other people kind of getting on board. What do you hope for the future of open and relational theology, knowing that there seems to be kind of a momentum of people really interested and in, in thinking about God and the world in these types of ways? One of the things that open and relational theology does at its core is take the world and our own experiences seriously. And because of that, it's nimble. That is, when new things come along, it takes them seriously and responds to them. So when so many people are dissatisfied with traditional ways of thinking about God or traditional religion, or they're dissatisfied with, you know, uh, making consumerism the the God of of our uh, culture, they can look to this particular vision and it's going to respond to the things that they find dissatisfying and offer a, a positive re, a vision. It doesn't mean that, you know, it's just sort of relative, whatever comes along this bad, it's going to be the opposite, but it means that truth really does emerge from our lived experiences and open a relational theology takes that super seriously. A lot of theological traditions kind of begin with, this particular idea and then logically deduce what they think all the results doctrinally ought to be. Mm. And um, there's, you know, some helpfulness to that, but oftentimes the results end up contradicting the way we actually live in the world. If you start with experience, then all of a sudden you've got a nimble kind of theology that makes sense with the way things are. And then provide a vision for things that are for a way that might be better something good in the future. So I agree. I think there's some momentum here. I suspect that it will continue to go. But since I have a God who's uncontrolling, I can't give any sort of guarantees that God's (laughs) going to make sure it ends up going well. And we're calling the, you know, our theology starting with experience, we're calling that the Meningenian unilateral, right? <laughs> I like it. The unilateral, beautiful. <laughs> I don't know if people are going to get Meningenian <laughs> correct. <laughs> Might be a little hard for them, but... <laughs> One of the things that I have found to be true for open and relational theology is that it can be really liberating for a lot of people 
And yeah. even though it's not necessarily a liberation theology, I think it can be really liberating for a lot of people. Again, not only personally, but also in terms of systemic issues that are happening in the world. So how do you hope that open and relational theology can be inspiring and liberating theology for people and the world? Yeah. Let me take uh, object to what you just said. I think it is a liberationist theology. Oh, okay, great. But we usually think of liberationist theology as focused on one particular group, be it ethnic group or gender group or whatever. This is a liberation theology that's for absolutely everybody, every circumstance. This is a liberative theology. That is, it says in your circumstances, there are things that aren't right. They're unjust. They're unloving. They're not the best that God would want them. And God is working and calling you and others to something better, to something that liberates you from the crap that you are seeing in front of you. And so I think open relational theology is inherently liberative. And that in itself, to answer the other part of your question, is inspiring. (laughs) That in itself provides a, a vision of the future that might be better. There are a number of theologies that have a view of God's power that make it seem as if the only way we will have a better future is if God decides if God alone fixes things. In fact, some people pray this way. Mm. They pray as if God is the only one who's going to bring us out of this mess, and it's totally on your shoulders, God. Of course, the downside of that is that oftentimes things don't get better, and we end up being sort of passive observers in that kind of model. We're not called to do anything. We just sit on the sidelines twiddling our thumbs. People see the problem with that and often swing to the other direction. And that is, if we're going to have a better future, we just got to roll up our sleeves and make it happen ourselves. Hmm. And that can be liberative for a while until all of a sudden you see not everybody's rolling up their sleeves (laughs) and people with really good intentions end up doing crappy things. And many people burn out. And Mm -hmm. so this idea And even more so, other people are fighting against you. Yes, that's exactly. So if it's entirely upon creatures and humans in particular, boy, that to me is not very hopeful. But the open relational vision says that God and creation can make the future. Now, creation can choose not to cooperate with God's moment by moment calling for a better today and Mm -hmm. tomorrow. And it often doesn't. (laughs) And it often doesn't. So progress is not inevitable. Mm-hmm. But progress is possible because this loving, luring spirit is always acting and calling, wooing, persuading all of creation to something better. And to me, that's inspiring. That's hopeful. It mm-hmm. means that my conversations with you right now actually might be a part of God's loving lure to make this world a better place. Mm-hmm. And um, you and I are playing a part in that. Mm-hmm. I remember like a month or so ago when the, I forget the the organization, but it's the organization that has kind of been looking at the overall scope of climate change. And they released a report about a lot of kind of what we know now about what's the state of the planet. And it was a very harrowing report, to say the least. It was really damning in a lot of ways, too. And 
yet despite all of that despite all the anxiety and even depression that can create for a lot of people the one thing that i think open and relational theology has going for it in the midst of all of that is that the way that the the planet is heading right now doesn't always have to be this way mm. there is a possibility that even god is aiming for that might be different than where all the signs are heading and yeah. I think that at least gives us a glimmer of hope. And so right when we think that the world is in, in a hell in a handbasket, to know that there's a possibility out there that God is aiming for a different world, that, that gives me hope and it at least inspires me to do the work that I'm doing in the world. Yeah, me too. That's nicely put. And I think also, I mean, I think we probably know this in our heads, but it doesn't always come out in our hearts. I think we ought to need, we need to make radical changes because of climate change. And I'm doing, trying to do my part to make that happen. But sometimes we also need to remember that when we have the facts before us, we don't have all the information. Mm. In other words, um, because we live in an evolving universe, there's, always the possibility of something different in the future. Now, it doesn't mean that absolutely anything could happen. It doesn't mean that tomorrow morning we wake up and, you know, all of the world's planet, the planet's problems have disappeared. But it does mean that we have a limited perspective. We have to respond given that perspective, but we should always hold out the hope that there's possibilities we don't yet imagine and don't yet dream of. And that's part of being hopeful too. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Last question, Tom, how can listeners get connected to you and your work? Well, I direct a, a thing called the Center for Open and Relational Theology that you know of because you're a part of that. Mm -hmm. um, and if you want to find out more about open and relational thought, in addition to you know getting this book, Open and Relational Theology, uh, head over to that uh, website, which is the letter C, the number four, and then ORT.com. You can contact me on my own personal website. I'm on a lot of social media stuff. Not as much on Twitter as you are, Mason, but <laughs> I get on there from time to time. So there's lots of ways to to contact me if people would like to do that. You know, just Google my name, I suppose, and something will come up. And you are the best emailer. I was talking with Keegan <laughs> the other day. I was like, if you email Tom, there's a 100% chance that he's going to reply in five minutes. <laughs> oh, that's not true. You've got like, you've got like three <laughs> books coming out. You're a grandfather. You are a photographer. You're running all of these different, you're a pastor now. Like there's just so many things you're doing and yet you still have time to email people back in like five minutes. It's incredible. Yeah, that's not, that's exaggerating for sure. But I'll, I'll give you a little, a little secret that maybe you and your listeners would appreciate. One of the ways I get so much done is that I also take big breaks. Mm -hmm. Tomorrow I'm going out for five days in the wilderness all by myself. And that helps me to get my life kind of in balance and I get good ideas and I just spend time hanging out with the birds and the bears. And that's one of my, it's one of my secrets for being uh, efficient. <laughs> How about that? So it's not like you're always open, or at least your calendar that's... isn't. <laughs> Sometimes you have a closed calendar, even though your, your theology right. <laughs> might be always open. 
<laughs> well, it was um, so great to chat with you again, Tom. The, I, I think this too, book Mason. is one of your best. I mean, it's exactly the kind of book that when any, you know, and I get questions all the time from people about like, what do you actually believe? I don't even need to actually write that book now. You've, you've already wrote, <laughs> wrote it for me, so I'll just send it to them. So, yeah, I think this is exactly the kind of book when people are really starting to explore different ways of thinking about God and the world. This is exactly the kind of text that they need that really would make sense to them and why it all really matters. So thank you so much for writing it. Yeah, you're welcome. And thanks for your endorsement, Mason. I really appreciate it. It is zesty. (laughs) Yes. If you'd like to connect with Tom and Kat and the Hurricane and their work, you can find links in the episode description. Thank you again for listening to another episode of A People's Theology. If you liked what you heard, please give the podcast a five-star rating and review. Also, please support the podcast at my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mason Menega. And remember, friends, go and be the theology to the world that inspires and liberates. First Corinthians warned you about the women with a loud mouth, and this podcast is just that. Here at the Speaking in Church podcast, we talk all about the regular people and the things that regularly happen to them in the evangelical church. It's a podcast about change, it's a podcast about seeking moral high ground, and it's a podcast for people who are just trying to deconstruct on the safe side. You can listen wherever you get your podcasts, and if you want to be a guest, yes, you, regular person, you can be a guest on the Speaking in Church podcast. If you want to come on, just let us know.